This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. For the briefest of moments, the Russian invasion of Ukraine provided this nation with a respite from the ugliness of our own partisan brawling. There have been unlikely display of unity, Republicans finally joining their Democratic colleagues in delivering a standing ovation for President Biden's support of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at this year's State of the Union address. President Zelensky, to every Ukrainian, their fearlessness, their courage, their determination literally inspires the world. Groups of citizens blocking tanks with their bodies. Everyone from students to retirees to teachers turned soldiers defending their homeland. And in this struggle, President Zelensky said in his speech to the European Parliament, light will win over darkness. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States is here tonight sitting with the First Lady. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This solidarity is driven, in part, by the perception of America as a steadfast global defender of freedom and democracy. Many Americans say they see a lopsided fight pitting a great power against a weaker neighbor. They see relentless images of dead families and collapsed cities. They see Ukraine's president pleading for help. In the darkest time for our country, for the whole Europe, I call on you to do more. New packages of sanctions are needed constantly, every week, until the Russian military machine stops. In polls and interviews since the attack, Americans across the political spectrum said the nation had a duty to respond to President Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion, even if that means feeling, at least for the short term, the pinch of high gas prices and inflation. The Biden administration has imposed an array of painful economic sanctions on Russia and blocked its oil, gas and coal imports. The administration has already approved $1.2 billion in aid to Ukraine, and President Biden is expected to announce another $800 million in military assistance. Three weeks into the invasion, most Americans in both political parties support USA to Ukraine and overwhelmingly support economic sanctions, as a new Pew Research Center survey found. And we see in our polling that what they want from the president is more sanctions and more weapons to Ukraine. Now, on the sanctions front, you mentioned there is wide bipartisan support for the latest round of sanctions. We see that even in our CBS News polling among Republicans and Democrats, even if that means gas prices go up. Now, we'll see how long that lasts, so that's important to kind of keep an eye on that as the months uh, go by. You're also seeing bipartisan support for what the president is doing uh, in terms of sanctions on Capitol Hill. Uh, but when it comes to, to weapons here, uh, that's another element of all of this. The U.S. has said that they are supplying uh, weapons to Ukraine over night uh, on, on Friday night. You may have missed this over the weekend, but Congress passed uh, nearly 16, uh, sorry, nearly four $14 billion in aid to Ukraine. That's twice as much as was a 
originally proposed. Half of that is for humanitarian assistance and half of that is for lethal aid. So that means uh, getting more weapons to Ukraine. In the midst of this unity last week, President Zelensky made an urgent and direct appeal to Congress for the United States to help Ukraine in its fight against Russia, casting the war as a fight for the future of democracy and the stability of all of Europe. Using stark, often stern language, Zelensky delivered a remarkably direct call to action by a wartime leader as he made the case that aiding Ukraine was a moral imperative for a country that has promoted itself as the beacon of freedom and democracy for the world. As the leader of my nation, I am addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. Zelensky mostly spoke through an interpreter as he addressed lawmakers on a large screen in a movie theater-style auditorium under the Capitol. Wearing his standard military-issue green t-shirt and seated next to a Ukrainian flag, he briefly stopped his remarks to show lawmakers a graphic and wrenching video featuring images of his war-torn country, including bombs exploding in cities and civilians, including young children, bloodied and killed by Russian attacks. President Zelensky sought to place his country's moment of peril in historical context for members of Congress by recalling two events that are seared in the American consciousness, drawing specific parallels to times the United States was assaulted by air, as Ukraine is now. It is a strategy that he has turned to often in recent weeks as he works to rally support for his cause amid the Russian onslaught. Friends, Americans, in your great history, you have pages that would allow you to understand Ukrainians, understand us now, when you need it right now, when we need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20, 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked attacked from air yes just like nobody else expected it you could not stop it our country experience the same every day right now at this moment every night for three weeks now various ukrainian cities odessa and kharkiv chernihiv and sumy zhitomir and lviv mariupol and dnipro russia has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. A key request that President Zelensky has brought up repeatedly is for American support to close the skies over Ukraine. He has also pleaded with NATO allies to impose a no-fly zone, a move the allies have said would essentially begin World War III. 
but has been rebuffed. I, I think it's still very difficult, Jose, uh, for the reason that we would need to bomb uh, Russian air defense systems within Russia. Uh, we would be in a shooting war with Russian pilots, uh, and, uh, and that would profoundly risk essentially a war between the United States and Russia. Uh, but there's a lot I think we can do uh, to help Ukraine shoot down those Russian aircraft, bring down those missiles, uh, and uh, I think the president is going to be announcing uh, later today some of those efforts to supply uh, Ukraine with uh, stronger, more capable, uh, as well as more numbers of these air defense systems. Uh, that may be among the most important help that we can give, as well as more javelins to take out Russian tanks, uh, more uh, um, ammunition and other supplies. So uh, we've done a lot already. We're going to do a lot more. But I still think uh, at this point, uh, no-fly zone would put us at too much of a risk of the United States being in direct war with Russia. Knowing that America would not answer that particular call, Mr. Zelensky instead pivoted, asking for powerful anti-missile defense systems, such as the S-300. Ukrainian officials have also requested armed drones and communication equipment, which the United States has not yet provided. Washington has sent other arms to Kiev, including anti-aircraft Stinger missiles and anti-tank Javelin missiles. The Biden administration earlier this month sent a $350 million package of arms and equipment to Ukraine, and on Wednesday, it announced an additional 800 million tranche. It includes many of these weapons that direct Zelensky directly asked for, hundreds of anti-aircraft missiles. We're talking about thousands of anti-tank systems. We're also now learning that the U.S. is providing Ukraine with 100 switchblade drones. Let me tell you a little bit about these. These are these so-called kamikaze drones because they basically can fly directly into a target say a tank and the drone itself is then destroyed it explodes they're very small they're easy to transport and they're easy to use which is really important at this point in this war because the ukrainian army needs these weapons fast and they don't have time for extensive training the administration right now as we were saying very much focused on getting these weapons to ukraine but george they are also saying they still have more economic tools at their disposal to hit the kremlin harder and the wallet where they say it really matters like removing more russian banks from that swift banking system they say they've got even stricter, tougher sanctions to steel levy. But George, you know this, the White House facing growing criticism right now, especially from those Republicans on Capitol Hill who say, given all these horrors that we are witnessing in this war, why wait? But this rare moment of political kumbaya will prove to be short-lived. The GOP wants to outflank Biden on Ukraine and return itself to its historical place as the party that defeated the Soviets under Ronald Reagan. More than that, though, they want to blame the Biden administration for the Russian invasion in the first place. This disaster, this war, is Joe Biden. Some Republicans have taken a different line of attack. On the far-right fringe, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, declared that an independent Ukraine only exists because the Obama administration helped to overthrow the previous regime, a reference to the popular uprising that took down a pro-Russian president of Ukraine, actually two Ukrainian governments ago. We weep when we see images of men, women, and children wounded or killed. We regret any human suffering and we mourn any loss of human life. But we cannot and we must not allow our compassion to blind us to reason and common sense. Because this won't be like any entanglement America has ever entered into before. 
A potential war with Russia is not comparable to Iraq or Afghanistan. This is an eight-year-long smoldering conflict in which peace agreements have been routinely violated by both sides. It concerns a country in which Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Mitt Romney have direct financial interest. A country which government only exists because of the Obama State Department helped to overthrow the previous regime. The ugly truth is that America is in no shape to throw herself into another foreign conflict. She too blames the Biden administration, but said she opposed any intervention. Another far-right Republican, Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, was videotaped calling Mr. Zelensky a thug, a comment that Russian propagandists continue to use. Remember that Zelensky is a thug. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies. Democrats have repeatedly countered Republican attacks by pointing to their silence when Mr. Trump fucking bragged of his warm personal relations with Mr. Putin when it was revealed that Mr. Trump's company had been negotiating to build a skyscraper in Moscow well into 2016 campaign, despite his outright denials. And when he stood by Mr. Putin's side in Helsinki, in Finland, and said he believed Mr. Putin's denials over United States intelligence conclusion that the Kremlin had interfered in the 2016 election. I was over in Moscow two years ago, and I will tell you, you can get along with those people and get along with them well. You can make deals with those people. Obama can't. The way he denigrated allies and spoke favorably uh, of Putin and of other authoritarians around the world kind of gave a clear signal both to American allies in the West and to Russia, whose side this man would be on if he were in the White House. Every Senate Republican but Mr. Romney voted to acquit Mr. Trump of abusing his power when he withheld military aid to Ukraine and then demanded that President Zelensky publicly announce an investigation of Mr. Biden and his son Hunter. Only Representative Adam Kinzinger has publicly expressed remorse for failing to hold the former president accountable for a shameful illegal act that weakened Mr. Zelensky as Russian-backed separatists were actively battling the Ukrainian military in eastern Ukraine. The Democrats who led Trump's first impeachment counter that Republican revisionism, ignoring how Trump's treatment of Ukraine may have emboldened Putin and led him to believe the West would fracture if he launched a full-scale invasion. The GOP response to impeachment told Putin that the United States didn't care about Ukraine, that it was willing to use Ukraine as some political plaything, said Representative Adam Schiff in an interview with Politico. And what is the defense from my colleagues? Now, I've listened carefully to my colleagues for the last eight hours, and I have to say it's been hard for me to follow. But it amounts, I think, when you cut through it all, when you cut through all the sound and the fury, signifying nothing, what it really amounts to is this. Why should we care? Why should we care about what the president did to Ukraine? Well, first of all, we should care about our allies. We should care about Ukraine. We should care about a country struggling to be free and a democracy. We used to care about democracy. We used to care about our allies. We used to stand up to Putin and Russia. 
we're used to. I know the party of Ronald Reagan used to. The American people and the world should not be swayed and bamboozled by the Republican Party and its propagandists, who are now trying to claim that they are diehard cold warriors, forever united against Putin and his aggression. The American people in the world should also not be seduced by superficial public opinion polls that purport to show that Republican voters are now vigorously anti-Putin and do not support his war against Ukraine. So, you know, Russia is uh, a Christian nationalist nation. They're actually Orthodox Christian and yeah. Russian Orthodox. So, you know, I actually support Putin's right to protect his people and always put his people first, but also protect their Christian values. I identify more with Russian, uh, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Uh, so, you know, like there is that, you know, that there, there is that there. And, you know, Christian nationalist countries also are a threat to the global uh, regime. Like the Luciferian regime, it wants to mash everything together. But Putin takes care of his people. He looks out for his people. I watched as he deported, like they literally walked them through the streets, the criminal illegals who were coming into their country. Yeah. They walked them out and they escorted them out and they said, get out. You know, I can respect that. I can respect that. And I can respect the fact that uh, Putin does everything he can to protect uh, his people. Putin is an authoritarian and a demagogue. He is anti-human, anti-freedom, and anti-democracy. He stands against the future and human progress and pluralism. Too many of his admirers in America and the West that he is a leader of white Christianity. Putin has persecuted and imperiled the LGBTQ community and is hostile to women's rights and women's equality. He kills and imprisons journalists and is doing his best to silence free speech. To make matters even worse, Putin now imagines himself as the 21st century version of Joseph Stalin. In a speech last week, Putin denounced national traitors who are supposedly undermining the war on Ukraine, saying that real Russians will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors. This is the man so many of today's Republicans idolize. They should make clear how dangerous to American democracy and society they truly are. They will try to bet on the so-called fifth column, on traitors, on those who earn their money here but live over there. Live not in the geographical sense, but in the way they think, with the mindset of a slave. These people cannot live without oysters and gender freedom. Well, it was a very belligerent speech. As you said, he accused the West of everything that Russia's doing. Uh, he justified the war, excuse me, the special military operation, uh, by blaming the West for being about to attack Russia. Um, what was particularly terrible, I thought, in this speech was his use of some phrases that come right, right from Hitler. Uh, he talked about national traitors. Uh, as the people who opposed the war. And he said that Russia needed to go through a period of self-purification. Uh, so there are phrases in that that I've never heard him uh, use before. He obviously feels very cornered. Uh, this invasion has not gone the way he thought it would. Uh, he's doubling down, however. He's not holding out an olive branch. And he wants to explain to his people that the reason why they're feeling economic pain and will continue to feel economic pain is all because of the sanctions. He did say in the 
speech that the West would have imposed those sanctions anyway, irrespective of the special military operation. The form of politics modeled by Vladimir Putin and his Stalinist dreams cannot be precisely replicated in America. As such, it is being massaged and reshaped by the Republican neo-fascists and their allies to assimilate more easily into American political culture. But it is no exaggeration to suggest that those forces are engaged in a Stalinist revolutionary struggle against American democracy. Their tactics, strategies, and goals are the extreme. Let us never forget who Donald Trump is and what he did. What's happening in Ukraine is his fault. The GOP allowed it to happen. It's all pretty fucking simple, folks. The rest of this nonsense from the far right and their Putin love affair is sick and twisted. And the GOP needs to be tarred and feathered with their own bullshit every time they try and claim the moral high ground when it comes to Ukraine. I say, no fucking way. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Miles Taylor, who famously served as the Deputy Chief of Staff in the Homeland Security, only to blow the whistle on the Trump administration with an anonymous op-ed that pulled the lid off the dysfunction and madness lurking inside the West Wing. After resigning from the Trump administration, Taylor joined fellow never-Trump Republicans in campaigning against his former boss. He is a frequent guest on CNN and MSNBC and offers the stark truth about Trump as he speaks out about Ukraine and Russia. Taylor's Twitter feed has become a daily must-read for his fact-checking of former president's claims as well as how he and fellow administration officials actually felt about the president's ties with Russia, specifically Putin, often openly wondering if the commander-in-chief was actually a Russian asset. He joins us today as the GOP and Trump attempt to rewrite history and whitewash their own role in emboldening Vladimir Putin. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Miles, this morning on Twitter, you wrote the following, and I quote, no one around Trump thought Russia was afraid of him. In fact, we all worried Putin was playing him. The Ukraine crisis would have been vastly worse on Trump's watch. Now, as one of the few people who actually worked in the Trump administration, you're able to really debunk or at least comment on Trump's recent assertions that Putin wouldn't have dared invade Ukraine under his administration. If you do me the favor for my listeners, unpack all of this. I mean, how would it have been worse? Yeah, well, look, I got to say at the beginning, Michael, first, thanks for having me. Second, this is uh, indiscriminately crazy that Trump would even, or anyone around Trump would claim that Vladimir Putin would not have done this on his watch. I mean, it was very clear to us the people in the national security community around Trump, that Putin not only was not afraid of Donald Trump, he was convinced he had Trump wrapped around his finger. I mean, there were you know people very close to the president who in the first year of the administration said to me, I, I don't know what side he's playing for. So just take a second, because I'll go deeper into this, but just take a second to sit back and think about the commander in chief of the United States 
has got cabinet secretaries that work directly for him that would say, I'm not sure what team the president's playing for. As in, they're worried he's playing for Team Russia. And that's how it was. Remember, the Mueller investigation wasn't wrapped at this point. Why Donald Trump was so Russia friendly, uh, but that his own team was worried he was in Putin's pocket is, an, is enough to show you how scary it was at the time. Now, if we thought that, if Trump's cabinet thought that, then undoubtedly Vladimir Putin thought that. And Putin felt like, ah, I could get away with murder with this guy. And he did. Because during Trump's administration, Putin engaged in all sorts of nefarious activities that undermined the United States. And Trump looked the other way. And the most glaringly obvious was their persistent attempt to meddle in our election. We had a digital 9-11 in 2016 with their attack on our election. And then in 2018, during the midterms, they tried to do it again. And I'll tell you, Michael, and I'm sure we'll get into this, Trump was deeply resistant to blocking the Russians from interfering in our elections. He didn't want us to do anything about Russia. He was mad that we would bring up Russia. In fact, we were told at one point by Mick Mulvaney when he was the acting White House chief of staff, not to bring up Russia in front of the president because it would upset him. Oh, yeah. And we don't we definitely don't want to upset him. You know, you don't want the big whiny baby to end up throwing a temper <laughs> tantrum, which I'm sure that you've seen. Listen, we used to see it all the time at the Trump organization. Hell, when I went to visit him in the Oval Office, the number of times he throw a temper tantrum, it, it's shocking to think that this could be the behavior of a president, let alone the president of the United States. But what I found incredibly interesting is not too long ago, Vanity Fair did an article and it was penned by Bess Levin, who I like reading her stuff. And the article was entitled, and I want to get it right, Republicans claim Putin wouldn't have invaded Ukraine under a beefy piece of man meat like Trump. I thought, I, that's what really caught my eye. I mean, you know, there are many things to call Trump, but man meat, I'm not so sure. Unless, unless Vladimir Putin is the Doberman, right, or the pit bull, and he's basically looking to snack on, well, it, that'd be more than a snack. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a full, you know, blown happy meal, you know, for a pit bull. But the part that bothered me the most is the bullshit, stupid statements that were made by Ted Cruz on Fox News, where he turned around and he said, Biden becoming president is the best thing that ever happened for Vladimir Putin. And it's funny because let's not forget how wonderful Donald was to Ted Cruz, right? Um, Lion Ted. Let's not forget the wonderful things he said about, you know, Ted Cruz's wife's looks. Let's not you know, forget the retort by Ted Cruz about Donald. But yet here, he continues on, right, to say Europe is on the verge of war because of the weakness, the fecklessness of Joe Biden. That to me is extremely upsetting. Forget about the fact that I'm a Democrat. Forget, let's forget about the fact, Miles, that you're a Republican. Let's engage in a real conversation, a bipartisan conversation about just how weak America would have been if, in fact, Trump was successful in winning the 2020 election. Well, I, yes, let's get into that, Michael. But you have me still mentally stuck on man meat. I somehow can't shake that out of my head. <laughs> and I'm going to have that bad mental taste for a while to come. I guarantee you Donald Trump is not USDA certified lean. OK, I can promise you that if it was in the in the grocery aisle. That's not what you would find stamped on him. 
But, you know, let me remind some listeners, you know, so, some of y'all, you know, think of me just, uh, you know, as a political talking as I've been out there crusading against Trump. But the vast majority of my career has just been in public policy and as a as a national security professional. And so I look at this through this lens, you know, would Donald Trump actually have been able to dissuade Putin from invading Ukraine? Would he have even tried to? Uh, unequivocally, I think the answer is no. You know, look, I would say this about Trump and Russia. Based on that experience, based on, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, focusing on intelligence about Russia, the threats from Russia, I, I would tell you this. If Donald Trump had won in 2020 and was still president, Vladimir Putin, A, would have gone and still tried to seize territory in Ukraine. It's what he would wanted to do for years. He signaled it in 2014 when he went and grabbed a piece of Ukraine and made Crimea his. And it's what he was intending to do as soon as he felt like he was in a good position to do it. B, Donald Trump would have let him have it. I'm, I'm certain by the way that Trump acted when we were in office that he would have let Vladimir Putin go take that territory. He totally agree the with other you. Way. Totally and, agree with you, Miles. And well, and I and I'd add, you know, you know, C or third, you know, Michael, that uh, what probably would have transpired is the U.S. Congress would have been forced into the position of having to do something because Trump wouldn't. And then you would have seen this huge political battle in Washington where Congress was trying to pass sanctions and Trump would say, I don't want to do sanctions against the Russians. Putin's our friend. And there'd be a back and forth and they'd probably have to override his veto. And Trump would be forced into doing something. And it would be vastly weaker than what Joe Biden has done. Uh, is this speculative? Sure. Do we have history to, that, that we can go on? Absolutely, because this is exactly what happened when the Russians interfered in 2016. Trump didn't want to do anything. He let Putin have his way, and Congress had to force him to do somewhat weak sanctions. It's what would have happened with Ukraine. So it's not believable that Donald Trump would have been tougher. It just, there's no evidence to support it. Right, and we, you hit the, the nail right on the head when you used the word speculative. But that's what Donald Trump does, right, under Putin. Under Putin, nothing else would happen, right? Because he respected me and we were friends. First of all, stupid, don't be Donald. You're not friends with Vladimir Putin. And you're not supposed to want to be friends with Donald, with Vladimir Putin. And trust me when I tell you, Putin is not friends with Donald. I mean, it's really amazing. The same line of stupidity, of horseshit that comes out of his mouth, whether it was with Kim Jong-un. Oh, it's love letters. I mean, look, you know... I don't understand that whole concept of Donald and Kim Jong-un writing love letters to one another. That's a little fucked up in and of itself. But then on top of that, you have the same idiot, the same idiot Republicans. And I'm sorry, because I know that, you know, you're a, a strong Republican and have been your whole life. But take Marco Rubio, another one who we fucked up during the, the campaign cycle with the naked pictures of him and in, in the new, uh, the Inquirer in a pool with a bunch of guys talking about cocaine binges. All of a sudden, he decides to join, you know, this Echoing of the comments, right? And then you have John Barrasso, also Senator Barrasso, telling Fox News that Biden talked tough, but Putin doesn't respect statements. He only respects strength. And Donald Trump is the epitome of strength? 
I mean, seriously? And then, of course, you get Senator Tom Cotton, who's blaming Putin's aggression on a year of Joe Biden's impotence and incompetence towards Russia in particular and in foreign policy more generally, right? Forgetting, and this is right out of Bess Levin's words, forgetting that Trump spent four years passionately kissing Putin's ass. I mean, this is insane to me, the notion. And then, of course, you know, they're all talking about, you know, uh, some of these oligarchs, some of these billionaires. And they go into a whole story about, for example, Len Blavatnik. Now, interestingly enough, I have no issue with confiscating assets from individuals so long as you can tie them back to Putin. Now, Len Blavatnik, I happen to know a lot about Len Blavatnik, and he is not one of Putin's puppets. He happens to have a U.S. passport, so he's an American citizen. He also has a U.K. passport, as well as, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, an Israeli passport. So the fact that they're grabbing some of these different oligarchs I don't know about those folks. And if their property is somehow attached to Putin, and don't just say because they're billionaires and they made their money in, the, in, you know, in Russia, let's also turn around and let's not forget, you know, you could say the same shit about the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Phipps, the Rockefellers, etc. And nobody should be taking their money either, right? So unless you could show that the money was obtained from illegally gotten gains or illegal means, then and that it belongs to Putin, they should really leave some of these guys absolutely alone. But then again, I don't have the information. You may actually have more info on that topic than I. If you do, please share, because I am dying to know. Well, specific you know, oligarchs I can't comment on. What I will say, though, is the way that the national security community does sanctions is based on a whole range of factors. But you know, factors that include open source intelligence, but also classified intelligence. So some of these people that are being sanctioned around Putin, I suspect, are being sanctioned because of things that we know about their relationship with him, things that we know about their assets that aren't necessarily known to the public. So that can certainly be the case. But I think your bigger point here is we've really got to hit where it hurts for him personally. And one thing I think that we have seen that really is commendable for the Biden administration is how intimidated Putin has been by these sanctions. The Russians are now running to the Chinese to see if they can get economic help because they are terrified. Their economy is in free fall. Now, it's not in free fall uh, simply because uh, you know folks got upset that they went into Ukraine. It's in free fall because the leader of the free world, President Joe Biden, marshaled other countries to cut Russia off from the global economy. It was effective. It's been a very effective campaign. And in fact, some folks are speculating that one of the reasons that the Russians may be more willing to come to the table right now in a negotiated solution in Ukraine is because they did not anticipate how effective these sanctions would end up being. Now, look, personally, I still think there is more that can be done. Uh, you know, I'm one of those folks that think, uh, you know, uh, they, they need to move, you know, heaven and earth to try to get you know, airplanes and anti-aircraft systems into Ukraine so that the Ukrainians can defend their airspace against the Russians, shoot down Russian jets. And, I, and I'm sure the Biden administration is looking at ways to do that. It was disappointing that they weren't able to get the jets that the Poles offered 
but but again, I suspect that there's efforts underway to try to make something along those lines happen. But the bigger point here is what you'd said earlier, Michael, is that Putin doesn't respect anything but strength. And Trump should understand that, but he doesn't, because Trump himself was an autocrat and only spoke the language of winning and losing. So it's sort of pathetic that he thinks someone like Vladimir Putin would just like him to like him, <laughs> you know, would just want to be friends with him and, and therefore wouldn't do bad things. No, much like Trump himself, Putin sees the world in terms of winning and losing. And to him, winners are actually strong. And so the way you play ball with the Putin is you take aggressive actions and, you know, you take hostages. I don't mean literal hostages, but you've got to have things that he wants. And so in the case of the Biden administration, they've imposed extremely costly sanctions that could threaten Putin's continued leadership in that country. He wants those to go away. He's going to have to figure out what he can trade to make those go away. And hopefully we keep ratcheting up the cost. So ultimately, Putin decides he needs to stop this offensive and retreat in order to survive uh, in his role as as president. Yeah, and, in, in and Miles, it's more than just the economic sanctions. It's the it's the loss of life as well. Like you don't want to mess with any of these Russian women when it comes to their husbands or their sons who never come home because they're part of the fifteen thousand that have already been killed. Despite, of course, you know Putin's revisionist way of looking at it, which is to say that it's less than two thousand. But on top of the economic, which remember. 60%, I think it is, of their, I'm sorry, it's about 50% of their economy is predicated on just oil alone. Now, there's so many people that are attacking Biden simply because the price of gas, you know, has gone up. And despite the fact now that, you know, gas is under $100 a barrel, somehow the price just is staying high at like $5 instead of, you know, reducing the same way that it was increased based upon the price per barrel. And that's just, again, you know, companies like your Exxon Mobiles, et cetera, who are out there basically price gouging the American people during a time that they really shouldn't. And even here in New York, there was some talk about changing legislation um, temporarily to get rid of the state gas tax, which would knock about a buck fifty to two dollars off per gallon, which I thought was a great idea. But another great idea is why don't we start fucking drilling? Do you know, Miles, that we have two hundred and sixty-four billion barrels? I'm gonna be like Donald now. Billion. We have two hundred and sixty-four billion barrels of gas, of of oil, right? I mean, you're talking about enough oil to feed the world for at least 50 plus years. It's enough to balance our, our budget and to get rid of our national debt. But for some unknown reason, this administration, and look, I'm not here on this show, on Maya Culpa, to pat Joe Biden on the ass. When he does things that are good, at least in my estimation, I'm happy to praise him. But when there are things I don't agree with, I feel, I feel compelled to speak my mind. Now, I may not always be right, and most of the time I probably aren't. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to be logical. If we're sitting with more oil than Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran combined, I think, why are we not drilling and supplying? Why do we not make China 
dependent on the United States? Why don't we become energy efficient on our own without having to buy Saudi oil, without having to buy Russian oil or Venezuelan oil? And we have that capability. We, we do. We absolutely do. And, and, and let's start with where things stand at the moment. I mean, the, you know, just today, we saw news out of the International Energy Agency that Russia could lose up to a third of its oil output within weeks because right now they're being cut off, not just by the United States, but by other Western countries and by major corporations. And so there's definitely a crisis for the Russians. We've created a crisis. No one wants to buy their oil anymore. And so they're being forced to offer it at these huge discounts. So that means the supply has got to be made up Uh, somewhere else. And as you know, Michael, the most obvious immediate place that it could be made up is with countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, countries like uh, the UAE. Right now, we haven't seen as much willingness out of Saudi and the UAE to make up the difference. But we, the United States of America, are sitting on the world's most extraordinary oil reserves. And this is a public policy dilemma because we've spent many years in a posture that's sort of anti-energy. And, and you know, the Keystone Pipeline wasn't approved and a range of other policy measures were shunned. And I think we're realizing that that's strategically detrimental. It puts us in a really difficult position when it comes to geopolitics to be looking the other way when we're sitting on this pile of oil. It would be very wise for the Biden administration to look to moderate those policies, to work on a bipartisan basis, to dramatically ramp up energy production in the United States. This is a national security issue of the highest order. Now, this can't change overnight. I mean, listeners should understand, even if Joe Biden today said, I'm going to do everything I can with Congress to go full throttle and try to dramatically ramp up U.S. production, we're talking months and more realistically years to be able to fully tap those resources. But there is a lot that can be done now because companies look to the government to decide if they're going to invest further, right? So our oil companies in the United States aren't going to invest billions of dollars in exploiting the reserves that are available if they think that U.S. government policies are going to be very, very restrictive in the long run, and it's not worth it. So they need clear signals today from the administration and from Congress that there's going to be a pro-energy policy stance in the U.S. federal government for years to come, and, and then they'll start working like gangbusters to make it happen. I mean, it, it just makes economic sense for them to be able to do it. Now, I want to say there are folks, rightfully, that, you know, that have environmental concerns. Well, you know, if we do that, are we going to remain dependent on oil forever? My position on this is that the, the government was never going to solve the problem of the world's dependence on oil. The folks that are going to solve that are the Elon Musk's at Tesla and the companies that are inventing electric vehicles that consumers really like. That's the demand signal that's going to change our reliance on oil in the long term. But in the short term, if we want to survive in this game of geopolitical threat against major adversaries, then we've got to be ready to play. And that means shifting our dependence away from countries like Russia and even Saudi and UAE. And you're absolutely right, Michael. We have the ability to do that, and we should. Absolutely. You know, but Miles, you're not the only you know, White House uh, guy who decided to write a book, you know, obviously yours, um, you know, that you put out there, Anonymous. Uh, Great book, by the way. Obviously read it while I was incarcerated. But someone who I'm not a big fan of, 
You know, John Bolton has also been on a crusade to debunk Trump's historical uh, revisionism. Now, why do you think Bolton is sticking his neck out to now tangle with Trump and his MAGA imbeciles? And do you see the fact that Bolton has this reputation of having an impeccable conservative credentials as effective as batting down Trump, especially amongst his far-right supporters? Because I got to be honest with you, I read his book. Um, what was it called? It was like Behind the Door or something like that. Um, the Room Where It Happened. The Room Where yeah, It Happened. It to me, it reminded it me of like Behind the Green Door, that porno flick. But, you know... I mean, you look at that stupid face with the fucking Monopoly Man mustache. And if you read the book like I did, I read it the second time when I was unconstitutionally remanded. The only book I can get my hand on when I first got in there. And remember, you're in there 24-7 with no movement. I even read his book. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it was painful to read because it's so self-laudatory. But if you would, just, I mean, do you think that his reputation will, you know, help him even with these, you know, far right supporters of this, you know, MAGA cult. Well, I, I hope it does. And whatever someone's opinion of John Bolton, what you can't say is that, uh, you know, he's been a lefty, uh, you know, he's been a hardline conservative his entire life. And I think Folks that aren't quite sure what to make of Trump's claims about Ukraine should merely look at the fact that someone like you, Michael, a Democrat who worked under Trump, someone like me, uh, a Republican who worked under Trump and worked Russia issues, and then someone like a John Bolton who worked closely with him and has been a lifelong hardliner, all of us agree on one thing, which is that Trump absolutely would not have been tougher on Russia. And the fact that he was so weak on Russia has made us much more vulnerable, has made Ukraine much more vulnerable, and in the long term is a danger to the United States. I mean, I genuinely think if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, that she would have put in place the very, very strong sanctions and the harsh response that would have been needed to deter Vladimir Putin. Putin. Why do you think Putin wanted Trump to win the election? Because Putin knew that someone like Hillary Clinton, again, whether or not you like Hillary Clinton, this is not who you like or not. This is just the reality of the policy. Clinton would have come in and kicked Putin's ass with sanctions to punish him for interfering in the election. He didn't want that. Miles, what that would have done Miles, he wanted, Putin yeah. wanted Trump because as Malcolm Nance constantly and others who've been on this show, yourself included, he knows that Trump would be a useful idiot. End of story. Mm -hmm. He realizes, in mm -hmm. all fairness, and I'm not saying this because I despise Trump. I'm saying it because it's true. And I'm not only the one, I'm not the only one who's saying it. It's also being said by John Bolton in this book. Donald Trump is fucking stupid. Plain and simple. Now, oh, Michael, you just hate Trump, so you're going to say all these mean, nasty things about him. Okay, let me take two different points out of John Bolton's book that sort of, um, let's just say, validate my response that Trump is a fucking useful idiot and an absolute moron. In the book, John Bolton states that Trump didn't know that the UK was a nuclear power. It, and he talks about some 2018 meeting with the United Kingdom Prime Minister, Theresa May. 
all right, in which an official referred to Britain as a nuclear power. Trump then goes on to say, mm -hmm. right, oh, are you a nuclear power? Now, John Bolton says that was not intended as a joke. Now, of course, what do you think Trump is going to say? Of course, I knew that they were, right? And quite frankly, I know everything. I have the biggest brain. No, no, because let me tell you, and this is one that affects Vladimir Putin. When this moron, this Mandarin Mussolini was sitting there in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin in the, um, in the Finnish capital of Helsinki, he was supposedly, according to Bolton, asked if Finland was kind of a satellite of Russia. I mean, honestly, you know, this is why Vladimir Putin wanted him, because all he has to do is turn around and say, I like Donald. He's a smart guy. And next thing you know, we're sending him military equipment to take over the Ukraine, especially, especially because the Ukraine refused to help him to gain information on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. And they refused to do his bidding, which is to, you know, make certain announcements that he wanted. Hence, of course, why Trump decided to hold up the money that was appropriated by Congress. Yeah, he uh, he, he did everything he possibly could to bend over backwards for Vladimir Putin. And frankly, Putin got what he wanted. And, you know, you're right to note, Michael, that, you know, everyone from from John Bolton to Trump's longest standing critics, you know, his closest aides to his longest standing critics have been united around this fact that he would have never deterred Putin. Putin got what he wanted with the Trump presidency. And and certainly if he'd been reelected, what we would be seeing would be even worse. I suspect we would have seen Ukraine overrun far more quickly because there just wouldn't have been the level of resistance we've seen now and there wouldn't been wouldn't have been solidarity in the west but this isn't just a retrospective concern i think the reason people need to give a shit about what you're saying michael what bolton's saying what i've been out there saying and others are saying is there's a very very real possibility if not a likelihood that donald trump is running for president again as soon as the end of this year Right, the midterm elections are going to happen. Advisors around Donald Trump have said, you know, don't announce your candidacy now because that means there's all sorts of FEC restrictions about how he can raise money, how he can spend it, et cetera. So they're urging him to wait. But once the midterms have happened, I, I don't think Donald Trump can contain himself. I think he's going to be very eager to run again for president. And if he wins the presidency again, you can absolutely bet one of his top priorities will be to cut a deal with Vladimir Putin. He said it to us before in the White House Situation Room. He looked at us and said, Russia is our friend. That was his guiding light when it came to engaging with Moscow, was that they were our friends and he was going to disbelieve any information to the contrary. That is an enormous threat to the United States. If we have a man back in the Oval Office who has that perspective and one, as you know, Michael, who is incandescently stupid when it comes to international affairs. And I don't just say this because politically I'm a Trump critic. He is genuinely one of the dumbest human beings I have ever breathed air with in the same room in my entire life. And when it came to foreign affairs, that was deeply embarrassing. These leaders he was engaging with, like Putin, like Xi, even like Kim Jong-un, 
Uh, and certainly, you know, at the time, Netanyahu and Israel, you know, these people were were giants and were very, very savvy when it came to the way that they engaged in international relations. Trump absolutely wasn't. And it was so obvious to you know everyone from our friends to our adversaries how to play him and how to play him like a fiddle. And he got taken advantage of constantly. And that's what's so frustrating <laughs> about Donald Trump's constant portrayal of, oh, man, I get these guys so good, I cut the best deals. They play him masterfully. And it was so deflating, as I'm sure you remember, you know, being around Trump and seeing him claim to make great deals and get screwed. And then when it's the United States government and the, the you know, the United States of America getting screwed. Yeah, it's deeply deflating to see him fail like that. Except, except they now the give years. Eric Trump another the biggest, the dumbest of the three of the kids by certain, you know, by far. They give him a platform where he goes on television. I think it was on Fox with Hannity. And he starts talking about how Donald knows exactly what he's doing. My father knows exactly what he's doing. He's playing them like a fiddle, right? And then, of course, you get, you know, Don Jr., who I've got, I mean, look, you know, I, I don't want to be critical all the time, but the stupidity that's coming out of his mouth is so much dumber even than his father's, right? I mean, he's sitting there, my father is absolutely 100% correct, and nobody even knows what the fuck he's talking about. Correct about what? Correct about that if, in fact, that he was president, that he would not be, that right now there would be no war in the Ukraine? Why? Because Donald Trump says so? But this brings me to my next question, Miles. You told, you were recently on 60 Minutes, and you told 60 Minutes that Trump, and I'm going to quote this now, envies the power of autocrats like Putin. How so? Well, it's because Trump desperately wishes he had the power that they did. And he would say that to us in meetings. He expressed his unending jealousy at things that President Xi could do in China, the things that Putin could do in Russia, that Kim Jong-un could do in North Korea. He would regularly wax poetic about these leaders and how they had it easier in their system. So, you know, one example would be there was a day that we were in the Oval Office talking about a range of security issues. And the president was furious. Trump was furious about what was happening at the border. And he thought the numbers were too high. And he went on a diatribe about how the U.S. southern border, we needed to take lessons from the North Koreans that we needed to take lessons from the North Koreans. He wanted armed guards, electric fences, barbed wire, soldiers with shoot to kill orders. You know, th that's what he wanted. And he was so jealous that, you know, Kim Jong-un had a demilitarized zone on his border, you know, chock full of landmines. And he, Trump, couldn't do the same thing. In fact, it was his greatest disappointment about the job is that he didn't have unlimited power. It's why ultimately I think he really despised the role at the end of the day is because he couldn't do what he wants. And again, I got to remind people because it's easy to forget since there was so much information that came out there in the Trump years and so many controversies. This isn't Miles talking. This is Donald Trump talking. No, this is right? facts. Trump is These the are same facts, man. Miles. So you got to yeah. call it what it is. These are facts talking, not not your well, opinion, yeah, you not my Michael opinion. When... These are facts talking because we'll all remember and I don't mean to cut you off because I want you to continue, but you all may remember when 
Trump and uh, President Xi were engaged in a conversation and Xi talked about, you know, how he's going to remain president for as long as he wanted, to which Trump responded something like, I'm going to be president for more than two terms. And then started joking, or as I always say, Trump doesn't joke, starts joking about, hey, what about Trump in 2028? Yep. And he took that out to the campaign trail. And, and you know, MAGA supporters laughed it up. I mean, Michael, you and I could probably ping pong with examples like that all day. I mean, there was the other instance during uh, the beginning of the pandemic outbreak when the president said to a gaggle of reporters, when you, this is a quote, when you are president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. And he said that to reporters. Now, look, Trump knew that that wasn't true, but this is what he does. He tries to manifest something and make it true when it's not right. That's why he goes out there and he says, I'm the best deal maker. Because deep inside somewhere, there's an insecurity where he realizes he's the shittiest deal maker on the planet. (laughs) And, And when he became president, it was clear to him he did not have unlimited power. And he hated that. So, of course, he's going to go out there and say, when you're president, the authority is total because he wants to project that image. He was jealous of those autocrats. You also saw it in terms of who he wanted to interact with as president and who he didn't. And when we did planning with the National Security Council about where the president should spend his time, right, what's worthwhile, often that planning would just get crumpled into pieces. Because if you went to Donald Trump and said, you need to interact with this Democratic leader in this Democratic country, all across the world, he'd say, no, I want to go spend more time with Kim. He writes me love letters. No, we should be negotiating with Putin in Helsinki. In fact, there was one point where there was a big meeting of the G7, the world's most powerful democracies in Canada. And Trump got fed up, fought with all of our allies, left the meeting in a huff, refused to even sign a closing statement. And where did he fly off to in his jet? He flew off to meet Kim Jong-un the brutal, repressive North Korean dictator. And he was so thrilled to meet him. I mean, it was the perfect side by side. He hated Democratic leaders because he knew they didn't have superpowers. They didn't have full control over their countries. And he loved autocrats because they did. And that was the power he wanted. And we saw that day in and day out and how he conducted himself on the world stage. Yeah, like like the fool that he is. And the funniest thing is, you may remember, all of a sudden, Donald is a is a professor, as we would say, a Talmud Chacham, right, in, in Yiddish, right, that he's a Talmud Chacham of the Constitution. You know, uh, pursuant to the Tenth Amendment, I have full and total control over the United States government, including senators and governors. And everybody's shaking their head. And, you know, you could see people like yourself who were in, you know, in the White House and people who were, you know, around him at the time shaking their head and saying, oh my God, did this guy really just say that? Because that's exactly what the Constitution is supposed to prohibit someone from saying. You are the president. You are not the dictator. You're not the king. But that's what he wanted. I mean, he wanted total authority and zero responsibility. So if something went right, it's only because of me. Right. I am your I am your king. Right. But if something went wrong, blame it on Michael Cohen. Blame it on Miles Taylor. Blame it on John Bolton. Blame it on, uh, you know, General, um, you know, Kelly. Blame it on, you know, on Scaramucci, on anybody, anybody that he could blame anything on to deflect from his own incompetence and his own ignorance. 
That's what he would do. So let me ask you this then, Miles, moving on here. You recently responded to a query on Twitter about whether or not Trump was a Russian asset. And then you responded and wrote, and this is your quote, his own cabinet members were unsure when I was there. So that should tell you something. If you do me the favor, discuss with me what the conversation was amongst staffers about that question of Trump being an actual Russian asset. Was that a common belief? Was that something that was talked about? It was talked about in hushed tones in the cramped corridors outside the White House Situation Room or after skin crawling meetings that you would have with Donald Trump where he would say things that made you wonder why he felt so strongly in favor of someone like Putin. Um, And I can tell you specifically when there was a lot of discussion about it is towards the beginning of the administration in year one, you know, a lot of these folks that came in to, you know, the Trump universe had never even met the man. Right. Largely, the bulk of the administration was people who'd served previously in the George W. Bush administration or on Capitol Hill. You know, these weren't, you know, folks that Trump had brought along with from the casino or from the stakes company. Right. I mean, these are former Republican staffers that come in. And so they didn't really know what to expect. And a lot of the people in the national security community that came in to work in this administration were really terrified by what happened in the first year when it came to holding Russia accountable for their intervention in the 2016 election. It was clear the Russians had meddled. They'd they'd hacked American systems. They'd tried to overturn the election. They'd pumped our country full of propaganda. And most Republicans felt like, hey, we need to do something about this. We need a strong response. You know, we're talking about the party of Ronald Reagan that stood up to and dismantled the Soviet Union. But when we brought these options to the president, he was highly highly resistant. There there was a range of very strong options shown to Trump about what he could do to punish Russia. And he went with sort of the weak T options. And even then, I can remember one thing in particular that prompted this conversation. Uh, Donald Trump did agree to expel a number of Russian diplomats from the United States as a way to, uh, you know, punish them for what they did in 2016. But Down the road, I remember him excoriating Chief of Staff John Kelly for letting him do it. Trump was so mad that Kelly had had helped reach this outcome that he didn't let him forget it. And that that, you know, was the case in a number of different issues where Trump realized belatedly, oh, wait, I did something good that they wanted me to do. Well, I'm mad because I liked Putin And, and he would hold on to that grievance for a very long time. And that prompted a lot of discussion because we would hear about that or Trump would just say it in front of us in a in a wider room. And you'd say, why on earth is he acting this way? Is he playing for the other team? I mean, you know, he's the president of the United States. He should be the one saying, yeah, we've got to be tough and we've got to stand up for ourselves. Instead, he wanted to stand down when it came to Putin's interference in our democracy. And, And that really had all, you know, people at all levels in the national security community wondering whether Putin had something on Donald Trump uh, and, and frankly, how to get him to actually care about these threats. And to this day, I still don't think we have clearer answers other than he saw Putin as the type of person, as the type of leader he wanted to be. And that's why he wanted to be friends with him. Yeah. So let me expand a tiny bit on that, because this is a question I regularly get on my Twitter account. 
Um, and people are constantly saying to me, you know more about Trump than anybody, and we want to know whether or not Trump, uh, Putin had damaging or, you know, um, uh, dirty information on, mm-hmm. Put- on Trump, which is what gave Putin the advantage over, um, over Trump and obviously to be used against the United States. And I want to be really crystal clear about this. First of all, that P tape, the one that like Tom Arnold brought up and so on, it's just not true. <laughs> all right. It's just it's just not. People would like it to be true. Rest assured, as I told Congress when I testified, if that tape existed, I would own it because I did have people. <laughs> I had people looking for it, despite the fact I never believed that it existed. And according to everyone, it did not. But every now and then there would be an assertion. Somebody would send something in that says, hey, I have the videotape. I have scenes from the videotape. It doesn't exist. All right. Does Putin Mm -hmm. have that type of compromise over Donald? The answer is no. It is much more simplistic than that. Vladimir Putin in Donald Trump's mind is not just the dictator, the czar, the supreme leader of Russia. He's also the richest man in the world by a multiple. According to Trump, his estimation is Putin is worth well in excess, well in excess of a trillion dollars. Where he comes up with that number and how, again, it's the way that he values his property, like including his own, you know, primary residence, the triplex at Fifth Avenue. It's just, it comes from his gut. But we do know that nothing happens in Russia, especially Moscow, unless Putin authorizes it. And we also know that 25% of every company is owned, you know, by the government. And again, Who's the government? Putin's the government. And so that's, I guess, where Trump claims. He wanted also Putin as a financial source, knowing that he can't get any money from Deutsche Bank. You know, he has to go to like these these garbage lenders like a ladder capital or others. Like, I don't know, the one that just recently gave him a loan, which is I, I don't know how or why they would do something that stupid and put themselves in the crosshairs of an FBI investigation, but none of my fucking business. He saw Putin as a potential investor where he could make money. He saw him, as you rightfully claim, as a strong leader, um, a dictator, a monarch, you know, a fuhrer of his country, which is what Trump wanted to be having total authority over everyone and everything like Kim Jong-un portrays, that's what he wanted to be. So it's not as sinister as people want to make it. It's really simplistic. It's, again, when it comes to Trump, it's always about money and power. End of story. So let me just move on for a quick second there, Miles. Um, You were recently quoted as saying that, and the quote is, the war in Ukraine wouldn't have happened if Trump had taken a stance against Russia. The pro-Trump, pro-Putin Republican parties, one of the biggest national security threats to the United States. There are millions of Americans who are pro-Russia due to Trump. 
Now, I'm curious if you could do me a favor. Elaborate on this far-right obsession with Putin. Because, look, I hear snippets from idiots like Madison Cawthorn, who cast Zelensky as an agent of the so-called, and this really pisses me off, woke left, and that there is a larger battle happening worldwide between the agents of white Christianhood and the so-called woke liberal order. Where is this all coming from? Well, I think it genuinely, I think it's coming from Trump. If it weren't for Donald Trump's affinity for the Russians, sure, you would have some Americans who thought Putin was a tough guy and supported him. But these people would be on the absolute fringes, the absolute fringes of American politics. But Donald Trump has mainstreamed this love of authoritarians by talking about it all the time, by trying to make the case. And when he makes the case, the people that depend on him for power go make the case as well. I mean, genuinely, you you take some of these congressional leaders who in any other time period would be stridently anti-Putin, but are either holding their noses and keeping their mouths closed, or they're actively going out there and saying, you know, Zelensky's a thug and making comments like that um, or praising Putin as a genius, as Trump did. They wouldn't be doing that if the leader of their party, Donald Trump, make no mistake, is still the de facto leader of the Republican Party. If he wasn't saying those things, they wouldn't be either. But how can you quantify this? Because it's not just about Trump. It's not just about uh, you know Republicans in Congress, a sizable chunk of which uh, have leaned pro-Putin in uh, you know in, in the midst of this invasion in Ukraine. It's about the American people and how many million of them now have pro-Russia views because of Donald Trump. And we can partly quantify this. I mean, certainly polls have shown that Republican voters have more positive attitudes towards Vladimir Putin and Russia than Democratic voters. That's not a coincidence. That's because of Donald Trump. But even more worrying is we see people that subscribe to the QAnon movement soaring in this country in their numbers. And the QAnon movement has been, by and large, very pro-Russia, and it takes this view that Putin's a great, strong leader. Well, a study just came out the other week that showed that 41 million Americans subscribe to the QAnon conspiracy theory. And I think that's probably understated because there's probably an even higher number that subscribe to parts of the QAnon conspiracy theory. So we're talking about at a minimum more than one in 10, you know, voting adults in this country believing in a conspiracy theory movement that's largely pro-Russia. Why is that dangerous? Because this is one of our top geopolitical adversaries. It would be as if during World War II, tens of millions of Americans said, ah, we like the Nazis. They're pretty great. I mean, can you imagine if we were in, in the, you know, the, the middle of the D-Day invasion and you had Americans coming out and saying, I don't know, I, I'm on the side of the Nazis. That's, that's what this is. Putin's regime is a Nazi-like regime. Yet, incredibly, and unlike World War II, this country is not unified in its opposition to Russia. And that the fault for that lies at the feet of Donald Trump, who has worked so hard to convince Americans what he tried to convince us, his own staff, in the White House Situation Room. Putin is our friend, right? Now, he may not have convinced people like John Kelly and Jim Mattis and John Bolton because they'd spent a career 
knowing that Putin was a very, very bad man. But he has been able to convince people in small towns in Kansas and Iowa and across the country who don't live in the world of geopolitics, who don't have security clearances, who don't spend every day seeing the threat streams about this country that wants to kill Americans, undermine the United States, and try to suppress us on the world stage. They're not seeing that. And so they're believing Donald Trump's bullshit. Why is that dangerous? Because those voters will take those attitudes to the ballot box. They will go vote for leaders who support their viewpoint that we should be less hard on Russia. What does that ultimately mean in the end? It means one of our biggest adversaries has an easier time screwing us. That's really what it means. Yeah, It's gonna make it easier for Moscow to screw us. Now, the silver lining here, I will say, Michael, though, is that Putin has overplayed his hand. The invasion of Ukraine and Zelensky becoming an icon has helped counteract some of this because a lot of Americans have woken up and asked themselves the question, Am I for the good guys or am I for the bad guys? But still, Trump's doing enormous damage. It's a real national security threat. Yeah, except the problem is, and you know, you brought up John Bolton, and I, I actually I have to go back to this um, simply because I'm angry with him. He had an opportunity to come clean early on. Instead, all of a sudden, after he leaves and after Trump is out, now all of a sudden he comes he comes clean. You know. You didn't do it that way. I certainly didn't do it that way. All of a sudden, now, don't you think that the American people, don't you think that the House Oversight Committee, don't you think that the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence or the Senate Permanent um, Committee on Intelligence or the House Judiciary might have wanted to know, John, what the fuck you were writing about in your book before you decided to do that? Don't you think that some of the information that you put out there in the book is things that the American people that are members of Congress need to know? And that's a big problem because everything that that everybody's doing now, it's all for their own personal benefit. They've all learned from Trump that, you know, look, I can make a buck off this shit. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, people will turn around and say to me, oh, well, aren't you doing the same thing? Fuck no. I am the only one who's actually lost money doing this. I didn't need to work for Trump. And I talk about it in my book, Disloyal, all throughout the book, that I didn't write the book simply because I can't stand him. And I wanted to warn the world of the guy, you know, who I helped to make president. What I really wanted to do is to pass the time while I was in prison and at the same point in time talk about something that we constantly, myself and a bunch of the other inmates, used to refer to as Trump derangement syndrome. The everyday nonsense. Could you imagine how I felt sitting inside the visitation room, which was used to watch television at night, and there's a picture of that fucking guy's face on the wall right next to, you know, right next to, um, you know, Michael Carvajal, right next to Bill Barr, right next to Petrucci. I mean, all of these, all of these guys hanging on the wall. I have to sit there and look at it every single day. He needed to come forward before, you know, and I, that's why I have no faith in him. And I think that he has unfortunately no credibility, but let me just move forward because the hour is actually really running by quick. This past week, we've seen two narratives play out in the press. 
The GOP scurrying from the pro-Putin comments made by its far-right members, and literally as they fall over themselves, to portray themselves as supporters of Zelensky and the Ukrainian cause. Then, of course, there's Trump's attempt to rewrite history and frame himself as the one who actually armed the Ukraine. Now, beyond Trump's hardcore MAGA base, who believe him, you know, if he said that he had a cape and that he could fly to protect you, you know, to protect Ukraine, most Americans, it appears, are actually approving of Biden's handling of this war. Now, how do you think what's happening now in Ukraine will affect both Trump and the GOP politically, especially as we now enter into the midterms, as well as the run-up to 2024? Well, what I hope it does is I hope it inflames the GOP civil war. And we're starting to see some signs of that. Uh, Liz Cheney came out the other week and and excoriated the pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party. Now, no one could accuse Liz Cheney of not being a rock-ribbed conservative. She is. She's been her whole life. She's Dick Cheney's daughter. Who on earth would say that Dick Cheney's daughter would not be a conservative? And she is. Uh, but she's been out there actively calling out the pro-Putin wing. I think this is important because what needs to happen in the Republican Party is a raging civil war. The party needs to reckon with its Donald Trump, its pro-Trump, pro-Putin impulses, and the values on which the party of Abraham Lincoln was founded. Free minds, free markets, free people. There needs to be a contest in the existence of the GOP to determine who leads it. And it's gonna be between those two sides. Now, I would say that the rational wing, the Liz Cheney wing, is on the losing end at the moment. It's an uphill battle because Trump has really co-opted the Republican Party quite significantly. But I think with the invasion of Ukraine, there are more and more Republicans waking up to the fact that they have a leader of their party and have a leader of their party who's really weak on these issues. It makes them feel uncomfortable. They read the quotes from Trump about Putin being a genius and their stomach turns. No, they don't want to go out there publicly and, and, and put themselves on the other side of it because they're scared of Trump's ire. They don't want to be attacked by MAGA folks, but it makes them uncomfortable. And that discomfort, I think, is potentially going to display itself at the ballot box in November. We want people to come out and support rational Republicans because they're tired of the Trumpy Republicans and they should be scared that those Trumpy Republicans are a threat to national security because they are, because they're befriending our adversaries, they're excusing our adversaries, and it makes America weaker and more open to attack. So uh, I think that, you know, in the medium term here, we could see some negative repercussions for the Republican Party over Ukraine. And look, if I was the Biden administration and thinking about this politically, uh, I would do everything I can to cast the pro-Putin wing of the GOP in a deeply negative light and to just hammer on that theme all the way through the uh, the midterm elections. So we'll see. But really, the, the important thing is going to be if we turn our eyes back to the presidential election after the midterms, we need to remember this. We need to remember what Donald Trump has said about our adversaries and hold him accountable. Because if we go down this road again, we might as well hand the keys to the republic over to foreign governments like the Russians, like the Chinese, like the North Koreans. Except the problem, in my estimation, is that unlike 
people like yourself who are trying to put others together, you know, like Olivia, like Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, like Anthony Scaramucci, uh, myself, and so many others, even though I'm not a Republican, to go out there and to build a grassroots movement so that we can help to open up the eyes. It's what I pray every day that mea culpa is doing. It's opening up people's eyes. And it's why I tell everybody, please tell your friends about the show. I want them to hear with, from people like you, Miles, you know, about what you know and the truth about it. I mean, because you're not going to get the truth from Trump or his family. You're certainly not going to get it from CPAC. I mean, for God's sakes, they had Don Jr., on the fourth day, the last day of the CPAC, I don't know if it was the opening or the closing or whatever the hell it was, but Don Jr. gets up and he says the stupidest shit. Now, it's funny because his dad used to always say, Don, shut up. I can't stand your fucking voice, hey, right? It's irritating. But he gets up and he's like, you know, I heard uh, the fishing trip went on for a lot of money, right? And see, if I were Hunter Biden, I'd put that in my pocket. He's already attacking that. But then the greatest line by Don is think about how things are going right now, that the administration that currently is in charge wanted to put together a program to hand out crack pipes, because you have to be on crack to think they're doing a good job, right? I mean, so no, Don, it's not, it's not what the program was. And he, like his father, they take, they, they take the worst of, of a line, and then they turn on I me. Mean, it looks like Don has been doing a lot of lines, but they take these lines and then they run with some bullshit propaganda crazy story. And the applause from the CPAC, you know, group that's there, thinking that this is smart stuff, that this is good stuff. Oh, listen to Don Jr. sitting there beating on Hunter Biden. Yay! Fuck yeah! You go, Don Jr., you crackhead yourself. You must be thinking that he's doing a good job because he looks like he's on the fucking, you know, pipe with, you know, with Kimberly Gargoyle, too. I mean, this is out of control, and it kills me to say that about the kid. I mean, I've known him for so long, and I actually liked him. I really did. He didn't want to be anything like his father. Now he's trying to emulate his father and he's going on the same stupid rants and raves about shit that's just not true. But anyway, look, Miles, as we're getting close to right now the end of the hour, I have just one last question for you because I want to change gears for a moment. You recently interviewed advisor to the January 6th committee, Representative Denver um, Riggleman on call-in where he said what should really scare people about the insurrection and why we should fear a violent um, idiocracy in the United States. Could you do me a favor? Explain, what did he mean by this? And what is percolating underground at this moment that has security folks like yourself, like him, really nervous? Michael, it's a great question. And I, I, I'll go back in time to say this was a worry even during the Trump administration, when we started to see the numbers tick up when it came to domestic terrorism threats, we took that to the White House and said we were really alarmed. Now, a lot of us privately believed that the president's rhetoric was driving that uptick. I mean, Trump's efforts to mainstream conspiracy theories, to fan the flames of white supremacist grievances, all, all sorts of behavior coming out of the Oval Office, we think was contributing to an uptick and the domestic terror threat. It's what made January 6th very, very foreseeable. I mean, I said a year before the 2020 election that Donald Trump would not exit quietly or easily 
In fact, he was already at that point in time starting to seed a narrative to his followers that, quote, civil wars and coups were afoot in the United States, right? And, and I said at that time, if Trump loses, this narrative that he's seeding could end extremely tragically. January 6th was foreseeable. Now, what people like Denver Riggleman, who again was a Republican congressman, now he's on the January 6th Select Committee, what people like Denver are worried about is that January 6th was just practice, as others have said, that we could potentially see worse levels of violence in this country because of the underlying conspiracy theories and, and, and attitudes towards political violence that have been widely promoted by Trump and his allies. That's a real security concern. Again, take politics out of it. When you simply poll Americans and you find that one in 10 Americans believe that violence would be justified to restore Donald Trump to the White House, that tells you you have a major public safety threat. And I know that law enforcement officials that I still talk to are seeing very high levels of domestic extremists that we're tracking. We're not talking about people who are being tracked for their political views. They're being tracked because they've expressed the potential to engage in violence to promote those political views. This is something that we're now going to be grappling with for a generation because the fertile soil has been tilled for extremism in this country. That's what Denver's worried about. Now, you know, he hinted at some really interesting things that they found in the investigation. Uh, I believe in my conversation with him, he said this was the biggest data effort that Congress had ever undertaken. So I think there's some really significant things they found and we'll stay tuned. And hopefully this year we'll know the answers. But the American people deserve to have a light shown on what happened so that we can prevent it from happening again. Michael. Yeah. Now, you may remember when I was before um Congressman um, Elijah Cummings, and I turned around and I won the world. I won the world at least two years before everybody else even considered it. That if Donald Trump lost okay. the election, my biggest fear is that there would never be a peaceful transfer of power. Because I know mm -hmm. the guy. I know the way he thinks. I know what's on his mind. And Unfortunately, you know, I must have graduated valedictorian of Trump University because I certainly understand <laughs> him, you know, well, way too well, including when I see him now on television or his comments. I, I know what he's thinking because there's nothing novel about what Donald is thinking today. Everything that he does is a rehash of history and how he behaved at the Trump Organization. But Miles, let me thank you for your time today for all of this new information, all of this um, scary, scary, you know, information that, you know, you're obtaining. I wish you the best of luck in this, you know, organization that you're putting together. And as I told you before, happy to help you in any way, because I legitimately, legitimately believe that our democracy is in peril, and that, the tr that Donald Trump and family, let's not forget about Jared, let's not forget about Ivanka, Don Jr., Kimberly Gargoyle, you got Eric and Laura Trump. I believe that they are as dangerous to this country as their father. So, Miles, with that, let me say again, thank you for your time, and I hope to see you soon, my friend. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be in the fight with you, and, and thank you for your leadership. Be well, my friend. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the GOP revisionism surrounding the Ukraine, it is important to realize how often they turn to this playbook. Absent any ideas or real power behind the ability to say no, they are quite simply the party of no. 
They used the chaotic withdrawal of Afghanistan in a similar capacity, laying the failure at Biden's defeat despite the fact that it was Trump who moved up the timeline. But there's something far more sinister lurking beneath the surface. In a new essay at the Boston Review, Bethany Morton elaborates why would a group of ultra-nationalist Americans celebrate the invasion of a U.S. ally by someone both the left and right have largely understood to be an enemy of freedom? In fact, though, the United States right wing has long cultivated ties with Russia. Some of these are self-evident quid pro quo affairs. The sweeping and systematic campaigns of election interference authorized by Putin in support of a Trump victory in 2016 and again in 2020. Trump's attempt to leverage congressionally allocated aid to Ukraine for political dirt on the Biden family. The confessed Russian agent who infiltrated the National Rifle Association and the National Prayer Breakfast in a bid to develop informal channels of influence on the Republican Party. More broadly, however, U.S. conservative evangelicals have developed strong symbolic and institutional ties with the Russian Orthodox Church. In recent years, these have dovetailed with white racist fantasies of Russia as an ethnically pure land of traditional religion and gender roles symbolized by the bare-chested kleptocrat on horseback, Vladimir Putin. This is what Trump and his MAGA minions see when they look at Putin. It's why Trump refuses to condemn him. The world Putin is hoping to build is what Trump wants for America. And if that doesn't frighten you, it should. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is me.